Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to take a look at chapter 12, 13, and a little section of chapter 14. And you're like, that seems like a lot. Yes. In fact, in fact, should we make it through all this? We're going to set a record. We're going to set a Calvary Slow record that's never been broken. In fact, last time I broke the record was maybe about four or five weeks ago, or a handful even before that, where I actually accomplished going through two chapters. Okay? And the history of Calvary Slow, that's huge on Sunday morning. Um, and so you're like, wow, he usually yells at us for an hour. Can he get through two chapters? No, because I talk a lot on a little things, all right? So, but today, we're going to get through about two and a half chapters, and uh, hopefully it'll be a blessing to you guys. Uh, if you're new here, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We took a little bit of a, a jaunt uh, for about seven weeks. We look at spiritual warfare. We're, we are back in the book of Revelation, and uh, we're picking up at chapter 12. Some of this is going to be a little bit of review for you, uh, because we've looked at little bits and pieces of chapter 12, but we're going to keep making our way through this. And one of the main reasons why we're going to read uh, chapter 12, 13, and half of 14, or part, portion of 14, is because there's really one constant stream of thought that's going on here that I think the Apostle John wants us to catch. Uh, when the Bible was originally written, it was not written with chapter-verse divisions. And so I think there is a propensity for us when we read our Bibles to read a chapter, put it down, pick it up, you know, a couple days later and read a chapter. And we've already forgotten the chapter that we had read a couple days prior. And uh, it's not intended to be that way. It's intended for us to read it on one regular ongoing type of a basis so we get the regular train of thought that's going on. So what we're going to try to do today is we're going to try to capture that train of thought. Um, If you are the type of person that is prone to reading your Bible like a legal document, meaning you scour the text, looking for every little word. You want to figure out what every little horn is on a head in the book of Revelation. You're like, you know, very carefully, meticulously studying, cross-referencing all these verses. Um, what I want to encourage you to do to understand first and foremost, I, I, this is how I'm telling you how I think the book of Revelation should be first and foremost read. Not to say that you cannot uh, begin to investigate and inspect every little detail, but first and foremost, I believe the book of Revelation should be read Uh, for its face value. In other words, getting a big, broad picture of what's happening there. Um, Kind of like a big story, a narrative. Um, And and then then going back, and then you can begin to take a look and cross-reference to take a look at fine details within the text. But I want to make sure that we don't miss the main storyline, the main narrative. Uh, And so what we're going to try to do is look at the bigger picture of this story and try to understand what's being communicated through John as he's talking about really an issue that we've kind of been looking at and addressing for the past seven weeks, which is demonic warfare. But it's not just that, because John doesn't leave us there in the pit or in the depths of evil or wickedness, but he brings us out, and then he begins to show us sort of the light of day by bringing us to chapter 14, where he talks about the beauty of Jesus, and he identifies Jesus as the Lamb. Uh, the first few chapters, he talks about a dragon, talks about two beasts, and then he finishes this train of thought by turning our eyes away from the beast, away from the second beast, away from the dragon, to see a lamb. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, a lamb, two beasts, and a dragon. Ready? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you right now that you'd help us to just understand this text. Um, God, we confess that a lot of times we bring a lot of baggage to this book. And God, we want to be able to leave preconceptions and baggage down. And and we want to be able to see this story, this book, the verses, these references in in a way that would just 
breathed life into our hearts in the same way that it breathed life into hearts 2,000 years ago when they first cracked it for the first time. So, Father, we ask you right now that you help us to see Jesus in this book. Help us to see the power and the beauty and the greatness of your Son, our Savior. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 12. We're going to pick it up. uh, And mainly for the most part, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be reading through really every single verse because uh, I want to make sure that we get this storyline. But before we jump in, I want to preface all this by saying that I think part of the baggage, and I prayed about, that oftentimes we bring to this book is we tend to look at this book as if it was written for a group of people that live at the end of the end of the age. Okay? In other words, uh, we have this propensity to pick up this book of Revelation and just think this book only speaks to us living in 2010. Had nothing to do with people that lived in like 1930s, or had nothing to do with people that lived in the 1500s, had definitely nothing to do with people that lived in the first century. What I want to say is, is that's a faulty perspective. What we need to try to do is understand, first and foremost, this book was written to a group of believers living first century. Now, it may have, and I believe it does, address with futuristic issues. I think that the, my, pers- my personal perspective is that this book is futuristic. It does speak of a future, a series of events and things that are going to transpire at some point that have not yet transpired. I realize a lot of people have different views, and we've basically been saying all along, you're more than welcome to have any particular view, as long as it's biblical, as long as it's steeped within the biblical context, that's great. We have fellowship with one another, we love each other, we're not going to divide over particular interpretations. It is a secondary issue to us of which we will not excommunicate, marginalize, think little, belittle anybody who's got different perspectives in the leadership in this church. That's it. Because we love Jesus. He's first and foremost. And how we view this book is secondary. Uh, Because in the end, it's all going to work out just the way God planned, even though we may not get it fully, completely. Got it? All right. Anyways, what we're going to basically begin to do now is take a look at some of these events that are going to unfold for us. Now, when John wrote this book, and the first Christians who had read this book they read it with a blessing in mind. That's why John says, those who read this book will be blessed. You will receive a blessing. That the intention of this book was to bring blessing to people. Now, did they fully understand every little fine detail? You know, we had hoped that they would, but the reality is, is that even early on, the way early Christians began to interpret this book from the beginning of like Justin Martyr, um, all the way to, you know, even 400 years after that, they had wide range of perspectives and interpretations on this particular book. So that tells me, even at the very beginning, there's a lot of confusion as to what this book's talking about. So that being said, what I want to try to do is make sure that we, first of all, realize that even though, even though this book may and does, I believe it does, speak of a futuristic time, what I want to make certain is that we in this generation, living in this day, don't view ourselves as being necessarily that generation which is going to live to see all this. And here's what I want to say about that. We may be that generation. We may be. I mean, Jesus could come tomorrow, and all of this stuff that we're reading could begin to just literally unfold for us. But what I want to at least cause ourselves to be aware of, is that all generations, in fact, I would be willing to make an argument that almost all Christians throughout all ages kind of view themselves as the center that all this stuff's going to happen within their lifetime. I'll give you an example. When Napoleon was around, Christians in that day and age began to just take unbelievably crazy ideas about the book of Revelation. I'll give you an example. They took like the, uh, the phrase we're talking about, 1,250 days. 
there's a guy by the name of Miller. And he took those verses and, and basically looked at them and said, these are, these are years. And uh, he, he basically looked at them going up to a particular point in time. And somewhere around the 1800s, somewhere around there, it said that Jesus is going to come back at that particular day. And when, obviously, Jesus did not come back in that particular day. Uh, the Millerite followers all kind of crashed and burned. And there was a lady that was part of the Millerite group. Uh, her name was Ellen G. White. She kind of rose up and started taking over the leadership. She was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And also from that, there were also sort of fragment groups of people. Jehovah's Witness kind of came out of that little whole scenario. And a lot of it was, this was a group of people that took the book and says, we're the generation. It's happening. We're in the middle of it. It's all taking place right now. Uh, the same thing, I think in a lot of ways, took place even in the 70s. People were like, up, oh, war. All right? Um, Things, bad things going on in Saigon. We must be the group of people right now within the next five, maybe seven years, we're going to see Jesus come back. He hasn't come back yet. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we are not the generation. I'm just saying, let's just t- take a look at these verses soberly. Let's try to put ourselves into the context and the history of a procession of historical figures that I want to make sure that we don't make the same mistake. Even though while we keep the optimism and the hope up that we could be the generation. Jesus could come back tomorrow. But that being said, he might come back in another thousand years. So I want to make sure that that does not uh, skew the way that we understand this text, skew the way that we understand this book, because we are so arrogant to put ourselves, ourselves, our generation, at the center of all biblical passage in history. When... Luther's day may have even felt the same way because in his day, the great antichrist of his day was Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and you can just go down throughout the entire history and see most Christians throughout all history view themselves as a sinner. All of them were wrong up until this point. And I just want to say, read our history books. Make sure that we don't fall prey of that same lie, same deception, and then 50 years, 100 years turn back and we're like, oh, we're wrong too. So just be careful how we read this. Make sure that we... Don't lose sight of Jesus in the text for the sake of trying to find and force some sort of interpretive uh, straitjacket over how we view ourselves placed in this book. Because at the end of the day, what I want you to understand is the miracle of all miracles is that God has a story, a narrative. God. And God invites us into that narrative. The arrogance of all arrogance is we begin to view ourselves as being individual narratives in and of ourselves. And we, here's where the arrogance comes in, we invite God into our story. Uh-uh. That's not how it works. The miracle is God has a narrative story and he invites us into his. It's not the other way around. Let's make sure that we get that right. God's overall. God has his finger on everything. He's in control of all things. Even even what may appear to have the least amount of control of it, i.e. evil. He still has control over all of it. Just like the water from the oceans. God says, here, you'll stop, and you won't go beyond that. God just sets these boundaries, and he says, here's the limitations. You can't go beyond that. That's what we're going to see in these chapters. Yes, evil prevails. Yes, evil has an existence. Yes, evil seems, I should say, evil seems to prevail. Yes, evil is everywhere. But at the same time, God is above and beyond it. That's what we're going to read. So let's jump into the passage. We're going to read it. The first thing that we're going to notice 
is the dragon, the great dragon. We've talked a lot about the great dragon over the past few weeks. Take a look at the first verse, or the first slide that we're going to look at. Verse 1, it says this. And a great sign appeared. Let me just say this real quick as well. Hopefully you guys all have your Bible. I like to put slides up here sometimes. Um, but be quite frank with you, I hope that we as a church don't become lazy. And we're like, ah, oh, it's okay. Pastor Ryan will put slides up. Um, I want to make sure that you guys have your Bibles. Don't, don't just be like, I don't need my Bible because it gets put up on slide anyhow. Um, I, I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, like a, it's a convenience that I want to do. But I want to make sure that at the same time, I'm not inadvertently creating lazy Christians. So... Um, I, I do have spies sitting out there, and they're, and they're watching you. All right, you know, anyways, just kidding. Um, but just, yeah, make sure you guys bring your Bibles, and we'll be key, keep reading this stuff. And the verse 1, it says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, and the moon was under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was, trying, and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. Um, there's been a lot of uh, interpretations as to who this woman is. Uh, the three major ones is that either A, she's the church, uh, Christianity, the church, or she's Israel, or she's Mary. Um, I think probably one of the most main prevailing opinions is that this is, uh, this is uh, Israel, and she's basically going through this great time of tribulation. A lot of scholars believe that what's happening here is sort of this is a fulfillment of God's work. Uh, like Romans chapter 11 talks about God doing a brand new work within Israel and restoring and doing uh, his redemptive work back uh, within the people of Israel. Some people believe that this is sort of the time in which it's all happening. It's very possible. Uh, but again, even however you want to look at it, at the end of the day, uh, whoever this woman is precisely, uh, the type of stuff that she's going through in this particular period of time is the type of stuff that Christians throughout all ages have gone through. Meaning great tribulation, great hardship. Maybe not the great tribulation, in terms of speaking about a futuristic type of event, but great tribulation, great hardship, great trial, like what Peter talks about, First Peter, that you will go through great trials of faith. Christians will go through great trials of faith. What we need to understand is that behind those trials is sort of this collective work, this monolithic work of the world, flesh, and the devil working in concert together to try to trip us up, to try to deceive us to get us to fall. That's what we've looked at over this past seven weeks and looking specifically and particularly at uh, spiritual warfare. So this woman is pregnant. She is about to give birth. And it says in verse 3, And then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon uh, with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven, and he cast them down to earth. The dragon stood upon the woman, uh, stood before the woman, I should say, who was about to give birth. So when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, uh, one who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So who's the child? Probably Jesus. I think Jesus is a pretty good way to interpret that. Um, I think it's probably likely, obviously, that this child is Jesus or a representative of Jesus or something, because obviously through that, or you can even possibly, some other people think it might be the church, because Jesus and the church are so linked that Jesus is called the head, church is called the body. You don't bifurcate the two. Uh, if a head is, you know, separate from a body or a body separate from a head, it doesn't work, all right? It just doesn't work. Uh, so Jesus sees himself so intricately linked to the church that they're one. So whether it's Jesus or the church, working together, however you want to look at it. Again, there is persecution going on. I don't want to take away from the fact that this is probably 
perhaps referring to a futuristic event, but at the same time, what you'll find is that the dragon, Satan, has always been basically using the same types of tactics and evil and wickedness and persecution and attacks as he always had from the very beginning. Uh, Satan's really not an innovator, and he's not a multiplier, meaning he doesn't multiply. That's why it says that there's uh, Satan, he's come down, and there's one-third of the other angels that have followed him. Uh, he's not you know, procreating. There's not new little baby demons coming around. There's not a neonatal ward for demons, and there are not new of them appear, not new ones appearing. Their number is set, and that's it. And again, some of us might look at that and be like, oh, that's freaky, that's scary. One-third of all the demons are around. But yeah, look at the other way. Two-thirds of them are all good angels. Did you get the idea? So if we just focus on the fact there's just demonic powers everywhere, we lose sight of the fact that two-thirds of the good angels are actually still working in, on God's team, in God's army. So, but nonetheless, Satan is powerful, and Satan is trying to work, and in this particular case, as a dragon, he's seeking to devour the child that was born. And it says in verse 5, And she gave birth to a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And, it, and uh, her child was caught up to God and to the throne. And the woman fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1260 days. So that number 1260 has actually appeared already in the book of Revelation. Um, I want to tell you how I, how I think uh, first century Christians would have seen this. Uh, numbers were important. Numbers were like... Uh, a sign to the Jews. So when they read certain numbers, it immediately triggered certain thoughts in their minds. Uh, for example, this particular number would have taken them back to a passage in the book of Daniel, somewhere around chapter 7, where it talks about there would become a day, uh, and he's prophesying uh, about these different types of world rulers that would come along and rule and reign and have great power and great significance over the world. And uh, what I think most scholars agree with, that it was referring to a time of about 165 years before Jesus came onto the planet. There's a period of time uh, under the rule of a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a really bad ruler, and he basically hated the Jews. He marches into Jerusalem and basically besieges Jerusalem and causes all sorts of havoc and problems with them. And on December, I don't know, somewhere around December uh, 25th, I think somewhere around there, uh, 165 years before Christ, uh, basically he handful of uh, weeks and months before that, uh, takes over the Jewish temple and totally defiles it. And the way he defiles it is he puts this big statue of Zeus in the middle of the temple, God's temple. And he also begins to sacrifice these pigs, all right? I mean, Jews don't like bacon. They don't, they're not allowed to have pigs. And, and so he takes pigs into the holy of holies and he begins to sacrifice these pigs they're on the altar inside the Holy of Holies, completely defiling and desecrating the temple. It's called the abomination of desolation, what Daniel refers to it as. Okay? And on the, in December, 165 years before Jesus came, there's a group of men by the name of um, um, the, Maccabean, the Maccabean brothers. Uh, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. There were two guys, two brothers, last name of Maccabee. And they basically over came overpowered through sort of like this militia army, the Jewish people, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes took back the temple, and it basically, they cleansed it, they, they, they purified it, and everything was sort of safe once again. And we know this because, one, history books tell us this, but we also know this as well because it sort of started a brand new type of a holiday that Jews celebrate to this very day. 
called Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated in the book of, uh, in, in, in the gospel accounts, describes Jesus actually celebrating this actual uh, celebration, this holiday called Hanukkah. But seven years prior to the cleansing of the temple was when Antiochus Epiphanes marched in and started wrecking havoc over the people. It was the final three years of his reign that things got really intensified, or 1,260 days. So when the Jews would have read this number, 1260, uh, they basically would have immediately gone back to that time and remembered that that number signifies intense suffering, intense pain, hardship, difficulty, running for your life, protecting your children. Things are not the way that they always had been. In other words, you have major disrupt in your life. Now, that being said, I think that even though that number is used there, doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, I personally think that that same number is also going to be used at some future point. I don't have any reason to believe why God would not still use another seven-year period in the future. So this number does have great significance for the past, but also has great significance for the future. Because oftentimes when God fulfilled prophecies, for example, in the Old Testament about Jesus, mostly, almost all of them were literal fulfillments. For example... It talks about in Malachi that Jesus would come into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. That literally happened. Isaiah talks about Jesus was, would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as like a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened out his mouth. Well, that literally happened. Uh, Jesus was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he didn't say anything. He didn't fight back. He didn't, you know, curse anybody. He didn't call down fire from heaven from, upon anybody. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, silent. So most of those prophecies that you see in the Old Testament that prophesied Jesus' first coming were all literally fulfilled. So I don't have any reason to believe that the prophecies that talk about or signify the second coming of Christ are in any way less likely to be literal types of fulfillment. So that being said, I think it's probably referring to a time of intense suffering. So the Jews, first century, as they're reading this, they're thinking about this number in intense suffering that the Jews or these people that are faithful followers of Christ will suffer intensely under the hand of the dragon. Do you get that? That's what I think is happening. People will suffer under the hand of the dragon, and yet God will still be faithful and nourish them. Verse 7, it says, And then there was a war that arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So this is, uh, this is Satan's second attack. Take a look at the next uh, slide. And then it goes on and says, against the dragon, against his angels, they fought back in verse 8. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and this ancient serpent, uh, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels, they were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. So the point that I think he's basically making next, so the second attack, he begins to battle Michael the archangel. First, he begins to attack the woman. Secondly, he attacks Michael the archangel. Take a look at the third way in which he attacks now. Next slide. Revelation chapter 10. Uh, I'm sorry, 12 verse 10. He says this. He says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers uh, has been thrown down who accuses him day and night. So the third way in which he attacks is he accuses God's people. He's constantly bringing these accusations against God's people. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever felt that? 
You know, you know that's, that's the worst part about not always following Christ. It's difficult sometimes because you follow Jesus. You want to walk with Christ, and sometimes you feel like a bad Christian. You feel like a loser. And the, the enemy has this ability to sort of keep rubbing our nose in our sin. That's accusation. That's the way he attacks. So verse 11, it says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Take a look at the fourth way in which he attacks. Verse 13 says this. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. The word pursued can also mean persecute or bring pressure upon her. Uh, who has given birth to the male child, verse 14, and the woman who was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent uh, into the wilderness to the place where she would be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. So that idiom of time, times, and half a time is basically another way of saying three and a half years or 1,260 days. Again, they're just sort of an interplay of images and of metaphors describing another of the same period of time. So here in this particular case, the dragon pursues and pressures and accuses and is persecuting uh, followers of God. And yet God, in this particular setting, rescues them. And he uses, obviously, as he describes it, wings of an eagle. Now, again, metaphorical language. How do we know that? Did God literally, is God literally going to rescue people with uh, a big, gigantic eagle? Kind of like the way, I don't know, uh, you know, just... You get this picture that, what I'm, I'm trying to think of the guy's name from Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, yes. You know what I'm talking about? Big, massive, I just watched it last night. That's how my brain just sort of forgets things quickly. Big eagle comes in, swoops down, and takes Gandalf and flies away. I don't think that's what's going to happen with Jesus' people. Big eagle's not going to swoop down and pick him up. It's metaphorical imagery depicting the picture of what Jesus had already done for the people of Israel way back in the day when God brings them out of Egypt and it says that he carried them on eagle's wings. It's just beautiful imagery. It's poetic language to say God is going to rescue. God is going to deliver. He will take care. In the same way that God took care and delivered his people from the Beast in the wilderness back when the Jews were in Egypt. So he's always done that. So he will do that in the future. It's intended to bring great hope. All right? It's intended to bring great hope. And then finally in this chapter, take a look at the last little section of the fifth attack that we see. In the next slide, verse 15, it says this. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out of his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So again, you see this picture of the dragon making war against God's people, against those who hold the testimony of Jesus. And what what he's doing is he's using some sort of natural types of occurrences to do this. And the imagery of Revelation, again, I've pointed this out before, it's kind of written like a comic book. It's used images and pictures in almost uh, sort of a fanciful manner to emphasize just how, how, how beautiful God is. It's using this literary genre to depict God's greatness and God's power that even though the dragon musters up enough strength to blow water upon God's people. God uses the earth 
to capture and redirect the water for the purpose of protecting his beloved people. Take a look at the uh, sixth way in which the dragon attacks. This is when we move on to chapter 13. What he's going to begin to do now is you're going to see the dragon. Uh, He's going to begin to move. And the way that he moves now is he begins to attack using these two different beasts. All right, The first beast oftentimes is identified as being like the Antichrist. I'm going to try my best to not refer to him as the Antichrist. I'll tell you why. That word Antichrist never appears in the book of Revelation. Not once. It just doesn't appear at all. So the question a lot of times arises, like, where did the word Antichrist come from? It only comes from John's epistle, where John describes there are Antichrists in the world now, and there have always been Antichrists in the world. These are people that deny that Jesus is Christ, and they live in a way that's antithetical to God. Okay, so what I want to try to do is I want to describe the world ruler, Antichrist, as what he's described as in the book of Revelation, which is a beast. The reason why I think God's depicting him as this or in this particular language is to point out that this is God's view of history. This is God's bird's eye view of how God sees all history. And what you need to understand is this is also history repeating itself over and over and over again all the way to the time of the end. This is the way it's always been from the very beginning. When, when God planted Adam and Eve in the garden, and God established them, encouraged them, and sin entered in the world, and they were deceived. And then their son, uh, Cain and Abel, rise up, and they fight against each other. One dies. All the way to the Tower of Babel, where this is an attempt to somehow unify all things, to somehow take uh, governance into their hands, and to exercise authority and power, and sometimes in some ways dictatorship, and oppress peoples on the planet, and they abuse one another, they hurt one another, they wound one another, all the way to the time of like Hitler, where you have this massive leader who's trying to overcome the world, but he uses force. He didn't rise to power being an evil leader. He rose to power being loved, being cared for. People respected him. People honored him. He was able to woo the crowds of people, a whole generation of people, and he became powerful, and his power led to this corruption. All the way, Satan will keep recapitulating himself and his efforts and his means all the way to the very end. That's why I say before, Satan is not an innovator. He's not. He just looks for new forms of technology to keep using and to keep recapitulating his same old forms and habits and evil over and over and over again, all the way to the very end. But what you need to understand is the way that the dragon does this is through these two beasts. Listen to how John describes this. Verse 1. Then I saw a beast arising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemies on its heads. Uh, the ten horns or hen- horns oftentimes refer to power or strength, as in the horn of like a, a, a ram. Uh, that was, that's where their power is at, is in their horns. So this idea of a horn depicts power. Crowns awfully, uh, obviously depict some sort of authority and leadership or kingship. Um, and the diadems refer to this kingly sh- kingliness. Um, in verse 2 it says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like that of a lion. Um, Sorry, and it's the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was that like of a lion, of a bear's, and its mouth was like that of a lion's mouth. And to to it the dragon gave his power, 
and his throne and great authority. Daniel chapter 7, I'd encourage you to, to you know, read that at some point, maybe if you're taking notes to get more information on this. Uh, he talks about sort of this series of beasts, and in Daniel's story, they're, they're individual beasts. Uh, in this story, it's very similar to Daniel's, but they're all one beast. I think this is John's way in this literary format to basically say, yeah, they're not separate. They may look separate, but in reality, they're all part of the same, same deal from the very beginning. They are all empowered by the dragon. All of them. All world history is just a constant repeating of itself. Dragon. Dragon. He's behind it all. He's behind the corruption. He's behind the oppression. He's behind those who take advantage. He's behind those who are constantly ruining and destroying. He's behind the lies. He's behind the duplicity. He's behind the evil. And he's even behind all those supposed experiments of good that are done with bad intentions or bad or maybe even done with good intentions but with bad motives. There's motives that are somehow intertwined in there that are corrupted and deceived. The dragon is behind it all. That's the point that John's trying to make. And even though the beast may rise to power as some sort of a final world ruler, uh, behind his authority, behind his power, behind his might stands the dragon. You might even say he's like a puppet. He's just parroting everything that the dragon would have said. It says this, uh, verse uh, 3, it says this, One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So again, I know a lot of people spend a lot of time like, well, maybe, you know, he was shot, some assassination attempt. I don't really know. To be quite frank, I think a lot of that is just speculation. I don't know how this is going to happen, what it's going to look like, but whatever the case is, it looks as if somehow this thing was dead, and it's going to rise. So whether that be an individual who, you know, has some sort of weird sustained gun wound, I don't know, or it was a world system that looked to be dead, no longer in existence, no longer having authority or power, but now in some particular point of time that John's depicting or describing here, it's risen again from the dead. In a lot of ways, all the authority, all the leadership, all the rulership that John's depicting here is at best a parody of God's supreme authority, of God's power. You have to catch that. You've got to see this interplay in the text between Satan and the beast and their abilities and their power and their strengths and all of their means of manipulating to get what they want to get done and Jesus, the good king, the true king, the all-powerful king who rules over all, who's not at the whim of every type of circumstance. He's not a parrot. He's not just simply working something out that's arbitrary. He is in control and in charge of all things. At best, as I said earlier, all world leadership, all governing powers are at best a parody or a caricature of God's supreme power. Okay, he goes on, and he says this, and they worship the dragon, and he was given authority uh, to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who's like the beast, and who can fight against it? This is very interesting, because Psalm 113, it's a great psalm, and it's a psalm about God. And there's this little phrase, this little statement that comes up at about verse, I don't know, four, something like that, Psalm 113, and it says this, who is like our God? And really what's going on here is you're seeing massive deception, Rather than looking at the all-supreme, all-powerful, all-gracious, all-gracious, merciful God, 
and saying, who is like our God? Because of the deception, people are saying, who is like the beast? Who has authority like him? Who has power like him? Who has might like him? We have to understand, guys, Christians throughout all history have always tried to figure out where do we fit in the society? How do we live? This is why when Jews were exported from the land of Israel into Babylonian captivity, they saw themselves as being an exile. They lived in exile. They had jobs. They took care of families. They started businesses. But they always viewed themselves as separate from the culture, even though they're in the culture. This is why Peter writes, this is my fellow exiles. You guys are in the culture, but not of the culture. Jesus' words would be this. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. We serve a higher king, a greater king. We don't put hope and boast and confidence in the world's systems. That doesn't mean we don't pray for them either. We do pray for them, just like all the other New Testament writers urge us to do, to pray for God's peace. Because as they operate in some sort of means that reflects God's purposes, then peace is prevalent within the land. Even if it's a forced peace, it's a peace that allows for the gospel to go out and for us to be able to do the things that we do here right now, like worship. We're in other countries, we can't do this. Because there's no peace. They live in under dictatorships or tyranny. People take advantage. If you walk down the street, you got a Bible, you get shot. It's not a good place to be. We've got great privileges and great blessings. We should be thanking God for that. But the reality is, is no matter how great the peace is in this world, all of it, like I said, is a parody of the peace that God gives. Don't fall prey, as he describes here, of worshiping the beast, of devoting yourself to the beast, because the beast ultimately is empowered by the dragon himself. And he goes on and describes it this way in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's, again, that image of a time frame. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name uh, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, and is also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name is not written in the book, uh, before the, written before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call to endurance and faith of the saints. So this is basically a call to say, listen, Christians, people who follow God, you're in a world that is under the authority, under the authority of the dragon. I hope we see that. I just got um, the Lord of the Rings, the first part, right, Fellowship of the Ring, uh, from a friend of ours, and I started watching it Friday night with my daughter, and while I'm writing, and while I'm watching it, I'm like, I grab my computer, because there's all these phenomenal quotes. I want to tell you one I, that I saw, that I heard, that was great. I wrote it down, here's what it says. There's this little section, sort of at, towards kind of the end of the, I think, I don't know, disc one or whatever, it talks about this. Um, Gandalf, right, there's that nice wizard, right, whatever, and uh, he basically is making this assessment he's trying to identify the evil that's going on in Sauron. And he's, he makes this quote. Here's what he says. He says, his treachery runs deeper than we know. And the whole point of that little section is to basically say, look, a lot of us have been deceived. 
we look around the world, what he's saying is that we think that we're all safe, we're going to be fine. And the ring, that's the whole idea of this ring that, you know, Tolkien is a genius in his ability to be able to somehow convey this seduction, this authority, this power that this ring wields over human beings and all creatures, all right? And what it does is anybody that sort of kind of falls in love with this ring does so thinking that it's going to add something to their life, add power, it's going to give them authority, it's going to give them identity, it's going to give them something. And what ends up happening is they become controlled by this thing. Inevitably, what ends up happening is they become beast-like. Tolkien knew what he was talking about. That's what's going on in this world. And if you really want to see things the way they are, and not just the way you think they are, not just the way Fox News tells you they are, but the way things are, is that the whole picture that he's trying to convey, John is trying to communicate, is that behind this world system, behind all the things that we look at and we say, ah, that's helpful, that's assisting, that's aiding, that's taking care of us, no matter what it is, is a darker system that's just whitewashed, that's painted, and that can go for even powers in this world, that can even go for religious systems and religious powers. There is a darkness, a treachery that runs very deep. And his whole point is it's all under the control of the dragon. Verse 11 finishes up here. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth and had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. You notice that? I want you to get that picture in your mind. Think of a lamb. Cute, sweet, nice little lamb. But when it opens its mouth, rather than saying, Bah, it's pretty bad. It sounds like a dragon, right? That's what he says. This thing looked like a lamb, but it has a voice like a dragon. And then he goes on and says, and it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs signs and even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell upon the earth. That's what's going on here. It's like God pulls back this veil and he's like, you really, you really want to know what's happening? You really want to know what's going on? Is that you have this docile, cute, little system that looks fine. Everybody thinks it's nice. In fact, you want to just go pet it because it looks so sweet and gentle and docile. But this lamb-like thing is really another beast, empowered by the dragon, intended to seduce, intended to deceive, intended to destroy Intended ultimately to in bondage. That's the purpose of it. And he goes on to say, verse 15, and it was allowed to give birth to the image, and the, or give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those uh, who would worship the image of the beast to be slain. So his intention is to kill. Satan's purpose always is to steal, kill, and destroy. And like I've said before, He'll try to ensnare you through hardcore, gnarly, sinful activities. Or, going to church. Yeah, going to church. Reading your Bible. Just thinking that you can live a religious life. He'll slay you there too. He doesn't care. As long as you are able to stay at arm's length from the Lamb. He's got you. It's his whole point. Verse 16, he says... Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead. 
so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's a number of man, and its number is 666. I'm not even going to go into all the crazy nut job interpretations of this, but the point of the matter is, is that it is some number. A number, the number six indicates the number of a man. Uh, n- there's numeric value to all sorts of Jewish and uh, even Greek types of numbers. It's the number of a man, and whatever this number is or whatever it implies, is it means that you're part of the system. And so you, you, you can't stop at this verse and just say, oh, okay, there's a handful of people that are marked with the number of the beast without going into the next and finishing up this little section. Because like I said, if you stop at this chapter break and you don't go into chapter 14, th- then you miss the juxtaposition that John's trying to convey. Here's what he says in chapter 14. And then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him was 144,000 who had the names of their fathers sealed on their foreheads. Did you get that? Here's what John does. He breaks humanity down into two categories. Those who are sealed with the mark of the beast. They're seduced. They're deceived. They fall prey. And then there are those who are sealed by the mark of Christ. The name of God is there in their foreheads. A literal mark? Probably not. But a mark nonetheless. They're identified. God knows who they are. John is basically saying all humanity breaks down in one of two categories. There are those that either see God as great and they worship God or they turn to the parody. They turn to the caricature. They worship the signpost. They worship something else other than the true and living God. And the intention behind every other thing is to bring seduction, is to bring about a snare, is to trap us. Later on in the book of Revelation, it's going to describe those who had interactions with the beast, with the dragon, is going to be like those who had sex with a prostitute and feel defiled. That's the picture that John wants us to catch. It is so intense and so graphic and so just wicked in a sense where John wants us to feel it, that this is the way humanity is. And this is what makes Jesus so great is that he comes into our world, into the deception himself while not being deceived, into the sin without stumbling because of sin, into the evil without becoming evil, into the brokenness without himself ultimately giving in. Jesus himself becomes a man for the purpose of seeking and saving those who are lost, deceived, bound, and destroyed. And this is what he's saying. I saw this huge group of people that hadn't fallen because they've been captured. Jesus grabs a hold of them. A lot of discussion about this 144,000. Like I said, some believe it's uh, referencing Israel in the future state possible, and I think it's probably what it is. But my point that I want to make is this. Whoever it is, they share characteristics that are just like you and I. If you're a Christian, here's what he's saying. He goes on to point out, And I'm done here. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. And like the the voice that I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. Again, kind of an interesting, uh, you know, idiom that he uses. He says this voice that he hears, it's like a loud thunder. And he also describes it's like a harpist playing on a harp. You see what I'm saying? It's just like two radical differing perspectives, and John kind of fuses them. So I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to convey, but obviously there's great diversity and beauty within it. Verse 3, 
It says, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000. He, uh, he who had been redeemed from the earth, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women and they're virgins. And it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These who have been redeemed from mankind and as first fruits to God and before the lamb and in their mouth was no lie was found because they're blameless. So John breaks all humanity down to those who follow the beast, the first beast, or the second beast. It doesn't make any difference. Because whether it's the first beast or the second beast, they're all run by the dragon. Whether it's they're deceived by sin and they bite sin, they love sin, they fall in love with sin, it doesn't matter. It's all run by the dragon. Even if they become religious, it doesn't really matter. It's all part of the dragon. And then there are those who John says in chapter 14, who've been redeemed who've been called out, who've been brought out, who've been washed, and they follow the Lamb. I'm going to wrap it up here. I have Chris coming up. I'm going to finish with this. I want you to think about what it means to follow the Lamb in these at least three ways. The first idea, I think what it means in terms of following the Lamb, is it means that we follow the Lamb wherever He goes, wherever He leads, wherever He goes. Being a Christian literally means I follow the Lamb. Wherever Jesus leads, I follow Him. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says, If you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. What he's basically saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to understand, sometimes following me will lead to the cross. You will die. You will feel pain. You will know what it means to have to say no or to be pulled away from things that you think are good. But Jesus' whole point is it's a lie and it's a deception. This last Sunday night, it's nothing more than one of those hollow chocolate Easter bunnies you get. Like this thing's solid, it's full, it's great. You bite into it and it all crumbles apart. That's what Jesus in some ways is saying, is that follow me. You will pick up your cross and you will die. You will die to things that oftentimes promise you life, but they don't. They take life. They kill. They crush and they bind. The second thing I think that it at least means is this, is it means to trust Jesus as your mediator. This is important to understand. We trust that Jesus is our mediator. We look to Jesus because he's the one that brings us to the Father. Jesus is the lamb that leads us to the Father. He's our mediator. We're going to sing in a second here. I think one of the things that sometimes we think is that we think singing songs is my mediator. And we say stuff like this, like, you know, singing makes me feel close to God. Well, that's good. I think music is huge. It's going to be part of heaven. It's one of the reasons why we sing, because it's awesome. We love to sing. But here's one of the problems. Here's one of the ways in which we are very able to identify even singing, even worship, singing songs like this can become idolatrous. As we look at it, we're like, ah, you know, I didn't feel Jesus. I didn't feel God because I didn't like the music. The music is not the mediator. Jesus is the mediator. The music is meant to bring us to Jesus. So it doesn't matter if it's like old school hymns or lame 80s Christian music. It doesn't matter what it is. We should be able to find Jesus in the middle of it. And Jesus brings us to the Father. Christ is our mediator, the Lamb. Those who follow the Lamb see this. The final thing is the Lamb brings us to purity. This is why the very last verse that we just read says this. And in their mouth was no lie that was found because they're blameless you got to catch the weight of this 
all of these people at one point were part of the system. This is why Paul would say something like this. You once walked according to the course of this world. And you were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. But God, who's rich in mercy and grace, because of his great love for you, saved you. By grace, you're saved. By faith. Trusting in Christ. That's why Paul says, and now you're blameless before God. We who are deceived, we who are corrupt, we who sin, we who are part of the system, whether we knew it or not, whether we liked it or not, whether we chose it or not, part of the system. But our great God, an amazing mission trip, stepped into our world to rescue us, to save us. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we will sing for all eternity. This is why our songs are so important, because Jesus is worthy of praise. This is why the question will be asked throughout all eternity in a hypothetical manner, who is like our God? No one is like our God who saves, who's mighty to save, to wash, to cleanse, to deliver, to mediate, to present you pure and blameless before the Father. You who have sinned and soiled yourself in your life and been defiled. You, all of us who have been children of wrath, have been made clean before the Father adopted sons and daughters because of this great love. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to give tithes and offerings to God. We're going to partake of communion. I would encourage you here, guys. Let go of sin. Let go of sin. It destroys. It binds. It ruins our lives. When God comes and says, set you free, dragon deceives and destroys. Jesus delivers. Jesus, thank you for the cross. That's why we're here today. That's why we celebrate. That's why we can even look at the reality of a future state of being with you for all eternity. That's why we even talk about redemption. It's all because of the cross. We thank you, God. Our hearts are full of gratitude. So we bend our knee to you right now, Father. We confess sin to you right now. And we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. He is our great mediator. We want to follow the Lamb wherever He goes.